Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. This is episode 22. Trump, desperate to win re-election, tramples on civil rights and liberties, and fails to lead. Stay tuned. This is a special program. I'm glad you could join us. We have several guests this podcast. Nina Ginsburg, the president of the NACDL, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, to discuss several topics about civil liberty and our justice system, so-called. We also have Phil Thompson from the NAACP to discuss what it means when taking down a Confederate statue. And finally, we have Shakta Khalsa, a political activist who is compiling postcards to get out the vote something everyone can do. And I've been asked, what can you do? Well, this is something you can do that will make a difference. But first, let's talk about where we are. Stay tuned. So where are we? You could say this is the worst of times, but we can't say this is the best of times. We can say it's oh so Dickensian what we're suffering. And we struggle to make it a reality that the best is yet to come. Hopefully about 100 days from now, when we extract Trump from office, kicking and whining, rescuing the nation after Trump, both unstable and far from genius, when he loses on November the 3rd. But we are not there yet, and we move forward with some trepidation because we've learned a lot can go wrong in 100 days. Right now, as I'm speaking in this podcast, the nation is under siege from the despotic and incompetent impulses of Tyro Tyrant Trump, desperate to be reelected and dedicated to do whatever he thinks will make him win. He is rightly sinking in the polls and in the battleground states that he won in 2016. He has decided, no surprise here, on a racist message from Nixon's Southern strategy, but his means are not a dog whistle sneaking the message into the psyche of his listeners. Rather, he borrows straight from Governor George Segregation Forever Wallace and foments disunion in new and different ways on a daily basis. Even as we honor, on this Sunday, a great civil rights leader, John Lewis, crossing a bridge too far, we have Trump fighting to extend the arc of monarchy and white supremacy. Trump has dispatched camo-suited, impossible-to-identify federal agents, his personal squad of brown shirts, selected by means unknown, by standards undisclosed, seemingly bullies like himself, no surprise there, perhaps from third-party contractors, say Blackwater, with unknown rules of engagement to go to Portland and Seattle to wreak havoc where they're known to be unwelcome. General Barr's politically offensive brainchild for this domestic troop movement was to claim as a pretext that there's a need to protect government bricks and mortar, that is, government buildings. Really? Actually, it's about invading Portland and Seattle to suppress First Amendment protests, to provoke the crowd, beating up peaceful protesters and kidnapping others in black vans, all because they are demonstrating against systemic racism that Trump prefers to protect rather than to tear up root and branch. Trump and Barr have also launched Operation Legend, which is named after a four-year-old boy, Legend Talaferro, shot on June 29th while sleeping in his home. It is a real tragedy. They say they're fighting violence, but it was a shooting. 
as are the other incidents they're talking about. So they're against gun violence, and not Barr, nor Trump, nor most of Congress will do anything to reform our gun laws to stop or restrain gun violence. So what's going on here? It's a pretext, that is, to fight violence, ignoring the real cause, guns, because this is about a political excuse to impose martial law step by step, next up Chicago or Philly, not declaring for what it really is about, but as if Trump is the lone ranger fighting these things while he's invading democratic cities. Another tragedy is all those who have died in the pandemic while Trump fiddled, hoping it would just go away, you know, like the flu when the weather warmed because it was originally a hoax. According to Johns Hopkins, as of today, this Sunday when I'm speaking, we have 4.2 million infections. We have 147,000 dead. We're losing 1,000 persons a day for the last four days. Still, Trump wants everyone to go to work. Don't worry yourself about the virus. Trump wants kids to go to school, to free up the parents, to work. Parents and teachers think otherwise, smartly. Trump himself is canceling in-person attendance at the Republican convention, but he would send kids to school. Brutish. And that's the most charming thing you can say about him. Trump dons a mask and commends it in talks that resemble forced hostage admissions like those we've seen in the Mideast. But he wears the mask occasionally, but he won't underwrite testing. He won't help the unemployed, nor those who can't pay the rent. He wants the most fragile to risk the virus because they need to work and they don't have alternatives, and he doesn't want to give them any alternatives. President Wilson almost entirely ignored the epidemic in 1918, and the results were disastrous. Different time, different kind of person, but similar kind of result. You know, we're taught that history sometimes rhymes. In this case, it's pretty close to duplicating. I think what we have is uh, more like what happened in the Hoover administration. Another Republican who didn't get it, wouldn't do what was necessary during the Depression. Of course, he was not considered corrupt, so he was personally not corrupt, but he was dead wrong. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. Stay tuned. Herbert C. Hoover, the great engineer, lost his re-election bid in 1932 because many Americans blamed him for the Great Depression. And the devil was in the details. Hoover favored hands-off individualism. He didn't want to underwrite individuals, unemployed and homeless. No transfer payments for them. Hoover recoiled from anything even vaguely related to socialism, paternalism, or a planned economy. He believed it was heresy to support any government handouts. In 1928, when he ran and was elected, he said, the poorhouse is vanishing from among us. But not because the government was going to do anything about it. It was a trickle-down theory because the economy seemed to be good, so somewhere or other they would pick up the funds and they would do fine. It was that unseen hand of capitalism that would make all well and good for the poor. Not that it ever did before. This was a not-very-sermon-on-the-mount approach to the poor. Hoover's supporters circulated the campaign slogan, a chicken in every pot, a car in every garage. I disliked Hoover as a youngster from what I read about his attacks on Al Smith, the Democratic nominee, the former New York governor, 
for being Catholic, insisting that if Smith was elected, the Pope would be president. And in the South, they wanted a 100% American, not some Irish guy. And that was a cry by Hoover's camp to the Protestant KKK. One of the Ks I understood as a child was meant to be about Catholics, hard C Catholics, KKK. I'm not very religious, but discrimination is discrimination. The Southern strategy was alive and well in 1928, as it is now with Trump. In 1928, it may have been an emphasis about religion. In 2020, it's about race. So what does a family do when they have no funds to subsist and can't afford to pay their rent? By 1932, the poor had to create camps that were ungraciously named after Hoover. They called them Hoovervilles. Is that what Trump and his Republican senators are enabling today? Denying workers dignity, holding back funds that families sorely need, all the funds they need for unemployment, and a way to live where they are, to stay where they are, to pay the rent that they have to pay, or to have it paid by the government to the landlords instead of leaving families and their landlords to cast about for survival, where to live, how to sustain themselves as landlords. There is a great inhumane irony for President Trump who has spent his life building business and residential housing with his name emblazoned on so many buildings, casting out on the street those struggling to survive this pandemic. Some landlord. Before the Depression, they decided not to call it a panic. Panic sounded terrible. Depression didn't sound as terrible. Well, today we know what it was, and by the fact of what it was, we know how bad a depression is. And recessions, which is what we're suffering, are somewhat better. America was producing more products in uh, the roaring 20s than this nation could consume. And the profits went to the rich, not shared with the workers who suffered low salaries and wages and therefore had not the savings to get them through whatever crisis might arise, like, say, the depression or the panic. So hoarding the wealth denied workers a share of the productivity, as has been true in the last several decades, depriving workers today the savings that might get them through. There was also Hoover's isolationist posture that seemed to contradict what he'd done to help Europe recover after World War I. Before he was president in 1928, Hoover was considered the great humanitarian, and it was well-deserved. No one will ever say that about Trump, but they did say it about Hoover. Hoover had traveled the world. He served as an engineer under the British flag. He was a citizen of the world. He was praised for what he did for Belgian relief and wartime food conservation. Listen to Hoover over those many years ago. The possible misery of helpless people gives me more concern than any other trouble that this depression has brought upon us. It is with these convictions in mind that I have the responsibility of opening this nationwide appeal to citizens in each community that they provide the funds with which, community by community, this task shall be met. But Hoover favored restricting trade by the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act in 1930. American exporters rightly feared they'd lose overseas markets. They were right. Others were concerned about international payments, that they might not be forthcoming. They were right. Nations abroad took the tariff as a declaration of trade war, which it was. It is so perfectly terrible that Trump, with so much less experience in public policy, has chosen to isolate us when he should be opening up the markets for America. He should be letting us compete. Trump has unilaterally imposed numerous new tariffs on steel, aluminum, and a variety of goods from China, 
creating upward pressure on prices in the United States. Who pays that? The consumer. Based on 2019 import levels, U.S. and retaliatory tariffs currently affect over $460 billion of imports and exports, and President Trump's tariffs are increasing annual consumer costs by roughly $57 billion annually. What a guy. In briefs, the the tariffs are having a a notable and horrible effect on trade level, decreasing both imports and exports, which reduce consumers' options and further increase prices in the United States. Michael Porter, author of The Competitive Advantage of Nations, laments this Trump that doesn't know enough to lead or to know to open up markets for America to compete. Frankly, he's not, he's not equipped. Uh, he's, he, he, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that opening open trade is good for, mm-hmm. for an economy. Uh, we, 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 we know there's so much more known, and President Trump has never done public policy before. He doesn't know how to think about trade. He doesn't know how to think about almost any issue. And uh, uh, he has some good people around him, but, but we, we have here, uh, uh, we have here uh, a, a leader who first and foremost is very divisive Mm. so in a society where we're already divided this is making us more divided from another direction we have joseph stiglitz at davos commenting on trump's shortcomings the trade deficit which he's criticized very strongly is basically determined by macroeconomic forces and because of his proposed and likely to be passed uh tax cut The deficit will get larger, and the result of that will be the trade deficit will get larger, and that means overall we may save 100 jobs in carrier, but the overall job picture will, in these manufacturing industries that we lost, look worse. In so many ways, Trump is more like Hoover than his bizarre preference to be compared to, say, President Lincoln. During the 1932 campaign, Roosevelt ran on many of the programs that would later become part of the New Deal during his presidency. That's something like what Biden has done in recent days. He's proposed programs that he would put in place when elected. In 1932, it was said that even a vaguely talented dog catcher could have been elected president against the Republicans, and that meant Hoover. We hope that's true against Trump. The polls today, 100 days out, look that way, but 100 days is a long time in politics given what we're confronting in this nation. In 1932, Hoover received a letter from an Illinois man that advised, vote for Roosevelt and make it unanimous. Hoover called Roosevelt a chameleon in plaid, and Roosevelt called President Hoover a fat, timid capon. In the last days of campaigning, Hoover criticized Roosevelt's nonsense, tirades, glittering generalizations, ignorance, and defamation. Now, does that sound familiar? might fit Trump today as well. Roosevelt won a sweeping victory over Hoover with Democrats extending their control over the U.S. House and gaining control of the U.S. Senate. Now, there's a model to emulate this election season. And there's more. Twelve years of Republican leadership came to an end in 1932, and 20 consecutive years of Democratic control of the White House began. Until 1932, the Republicans had controlled the presidency for 56 of the previous 72 years, dating to Abraham Lincoln's election in 1860. We could have Trump honor Lincoln by 
giving us a chance to change the White House, the Senate, and the House. After 1932, Democrats controlled the presidency for 28 of the next 36 years. I'd be good with that. How about you? Stay tuned. Let's take a look at our so-called justice system from the vantage point of the president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, Nina Ginsburg. Nina Ginsburg founded a firm in Alexandria, Virginia, Demuro Ginsburg. She's a criminal defense lawyer, been so for 35 years, handled every kind of complex litigation you can imagine, and she's presently the president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, one of the premier groups for criminal defense. Liberty's last champion is their motto. Nina, good to have you with us. Uh, John, it's great to be here. There are, there are a whole bunch of issues we could talk about. We could spend a lot of time on it. But one of the leading ones today after the continued dis- demonstrations in Portland, Oregon, is what are we looking at when we have camo-dressed federal officials in a city to supposedly protect a building, which really seems to be a pretext for what they do when they go out and they are basically attacking protesters who are protesting race and putting them in vans and carrying them off. Do you have any reactions as a a long-experienced civil libertarian and criminal defense lawyer about what's going on there? Well, I have a lot of reactions, some of which I'll reserve for other venues, but... Um, this, in my view, is a politically driven appeal to Trump's base. Uh, he has said that he's going to send these, <clears throat> what I think are akin to stormtroopers, to cities that are run by liberal Democrats to restore order. And what, you know, th- there is some, there's no question, there is some crime that, that's going on. But what, what, what these local communities want is, tar- you know, sort of a targeted focus on individuals who are committing serious violence, not a mass show of force and indiscriminate sweeps of people who are there to exercise their First Amendment um, rights to assemble and to protest. The right to protest is a fundamental right that the American people uh, enjoy, and Trump doesn't seem to be able to appreciate that. Uh, The result of what they're doing is... um, actually not all that different from what you see in sort of cities where you have large federal law enforcement efforts. We have a nation that's over-criminalized, over-policed. We have federalization of local crime that's led to mass incarceration, um, which I think most people are starting to see is uh, is the, the cause of some of the, the root problems that we're all experiencing and that the, the, the people that are out on the streets are are protesting against. I mean, you're turning local crimes into federal crimes that have mandatory minimum sentences that end up stigmatizing and, and incarcerating people, uh, black and brown people, people of color, people in low-income communities. And then you end up sending in a massive federal police force and Instead of calming the situation, it's uh, it's reignited uh, the demonstrations. You, it, it's gone so far that we have something. Um, I think I read yesterday a wall of moms who were protesting in either Portland or Seattle, they were protesting a federal presence. Um, so I, I, I don't, I can't imagine what the actual legal authority is for a federal police force to go un, unidentified, you know, in riot gear, 
through the streets of the city and just um, in, in places that are not the federal courthouse and not federal property and just snatching people, putting them in vans and and taking them to either jails or you know places where they're being held. And then uh, there have been actually very few numbers of actual arrests for uh, crimes that um, that uh, that these law whoever they are these law enforcement people have seen occur yeah it does um, seem like they're they're trying to provoke incidents rather than actually uh, be if you will peace uh, officers and I think you put your finger on it when you talk about what they're basically doing is suppressing free expression. And what are they protesting? They're protesting racism, and you don't have to agree with me, but I think that uh, a person who's in the West Wing, the Orange Menace, Mr. Trump, is a racist. And so he, he wants to protect himself from this by making it a law and order issue when what he's really trying to do is to stem the discussion about racism that he is responsible for. Yeah, I... I, I... I think this is pandering to his base. I think this is the same thing as, um, in it, it just, and it's a different form, um, of what you see with the, um, you know, the foreign governments trying to influence our elections. It's like finding a topic that is sure to incite people, their, their emotions, and then spreading it all over the media, making it, for, making it something that no one can ignore. Um, you have, I think, uh, a federal law enforcement presence in Portland and potentially in some other cities because the administration got rebuffed by when it, when it tried to bring in the military and have military people clear the um, public square in Washington. There was such a uh, overwhelming uh, reaction against that, that now instead of having millet people in military uniforms, well, we have people that look like they're in military uniforms, but instead of having the military, you have paramilitary-type forces who have swept into cities that don't want them and that have exacerbated the um, <clears throat> the reasons that, that the people are demonstrating to begin with. And, Perfect. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just, um, it's... They're claiming that these, you know, I actually saw um, one news blurb where there was um, some unidentifiable law enforcement guy in, in military-looking garb just calling out over a, a bullhorn, um, this is an unlawful assembly. You're all committed, you know. Right. And there was just a group of people. They yes. were just standing. And, and then, you know, and then so people start then they go after them. They throw tear gas at them or one of these other sort of non-lethal types of dispersing mechanisms. And it just, it, it becomes what they, it becomes what they say they're trying to prevent. Well, it'll be interesting to see if uh, the current attorney general, the mouthpiece for Mr. Trump will appear on Tuesday before the House Judiciary Committee to discuss this and other issues. He's, he's found it difficult to appear to testify about anything substantial. Uh, uh, now, the, your organization and the one that you had and all of your experience uh, covering the various civil liberties, I mean, you, you have a full plate, but one of the things that's of interest is those people who have been arrested but not yet convicted of anything and those who have been convicted of anything are sitting in prisons. And the, the similarity with other dangerous places to be because of the coronavirus are like nursing or retirement homes, cruise ships, and it certainly has got to be inmates in prisons. And I know that 
uh, you through the magazine and various uh, tools that you've put together for lawyers have discussed how to approach the coronavirus. Uh, and I understand you have specific views about what's going on in our prisons. Uh, yes. Uh, and one of the things NACDL has done uh, in collaboration with FAM, which is uh, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, uh, is to uh, establish a compassionate release um, center. Uh, but what we do is provide resources to lawyers who are helping um, try and get their clients or um, people who are reaching out to them for help who are at-risk inmates um, and, and try and help them get um, their cases in front of judges, which is uh, something that they now have the right to do um, based on the First Step Act. But what's happening in the prisons is, is just unconscionable. Uh, I, I looked at some numbers um, uh, just yesterday so that I would have some current numbers to talk to you about. Yes. And I think as of the last week in July, the, there were 7,717 cases of uh, reported cases of coronavirus uh, in in the state and federal prisons, and I think for, about forty six, close to forty seven thousand of those prisoners have recovered. Um, the largest number of those cases are in Texas. Um, the federal um, the federal uh, Bureau of Prisons has had uh, over ten thousand cases. California's had over um, seven thousand cases. The numbers of deaths um, are roughly 680 deaths in the different prisons. Um, and among inmates, uh, there have been 54 deaths among prison staff, 15,000, almost 16,000 cases of coronavirus uh, among staff, uh, prison staff. Uh, a little over half of those have recovered. Um, I think a little over half of the prison, uh, the, the, the people, the inmates, um, the prisoners uh, who have been exposed have recovered. And the, the, the medical facilities are extremely limited. Uh, the medical care they get is little to none, unless they're so seriously ill that they get sent to a hospital. Uh, I have a client who I was trying to get compassionate release for who is um, HIV positive. He was in one of the federal prisons in California that was, at one point, had something like 60 or 70 percent of, 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 the, of the prisoners there were um, infected. They literally brought in the military, pitched, created, built up these tents, these huge tents. They put everybody who tested positive in the tents. So they're, they're, you know, these were just huge, enormous tents um, with no real air circulation, no way to social distance, no way to do anything mm. that is, was required by the CDC. And my client was, when I, on the very few occasions I was able to speak with him, which was almost never, um, he was telling me that there were rodents in the in these tents. They were bugs. They were filthy. They were the they were given um, the meals they were given were. Uh, sort of almost like ration type meals. It, it, it really was not what you would ever consider, you know, a way to treat human beings. Um, and and the, you know, for even for people who don't care about prisoners um, and don't realize that a lot of people are in prison 
for minor crimes that um, that if they were um, of a different race, they might not be in prison. But um, the, 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 the prison staff is going home to communities and they're carrying this um, disease with them. They're infecting their communities. The same as what you read about for the meatpacking communities. You know, it's 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 that same cycle. Um, it's really and, terrible. These are, and these are not unsolvable problems. They, they they're, they're not. Right. They're really not unsolvable. I'll tell you, my the my the local jail in my uh, in Alexandria, which is where my office is. <clears throat> um, there has not been one case of um, COVID nineteen, and that's because the, the sheriff implemented a very rig, very strict, rigid, very well thought out protocol for protecting people coming into the into the jail um people in the the people that are in the jail the 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 uh, prisoners and the staff it, it you know it's a 40 page document and it's it's you know it's it's smart it's just smart and no one has gotten sick and then in neighboring jurisdictions where they don't have anything like that kind of protocol there are cases of, of coronavirus in those in those jails so yeah. it's really a matter of choice yeah, so it can be done, and uh, people just want to sort of brace themselves, put their head in the sand, and just you know, go go as normal, uh, which is very treacherous and dangerous. It's very dangerous, yeah. and uh, it's just the it's um, it's just easy not to think about for people not to think about groups of people who are not who who they don't have contact with. But you can see what happens, same as what happens in, in places like Florida, where you have a, just this explosion of cases. If you, if you, if you keep saying, "Well, it's not me. It's not. It's not. You know, it's not my family," and you don't take care of it, you know, all kinds of people, um, all kinds of people get affected by it. And you know, these people, you know, whoever they are, they, they have the same right to be to you know to health care and to be treated. Um, the way you want to be treated in terms of, of how the how the, the virus is being dealt with, and it, it is not happening in the prisons. It just the, the, there are three, four, and five times the rate of, of uh, depending on which state and which type of prison system you're looking at, um, but three or four or five times the rate of, of infection in the prisons as you have um, as you have in the communities. Right, which is similar. It's inexcusable. To, it it's is just, inexcusable. It's, it's inexcusable. Yes, so much for the empathy of our country that we can't figure out ways to do this from the lowest level up to the federal level. You know, you know I'm just as an example. I just um, there are from in Florida, which we know is the sort of the epicenter right now. The number of deaths of prisoners um, per ten thousand the deaths per ten thousand prisoners is fifty percent fifty percent higher than Florida overall. And we know what Florida is, is, is the epicenter of the virus right now. Right. And there's, there was a story, uh, you know, one of these investigative pieces, although we would have probably assumed it anyhow, that they decided to disregard the science, in fact, fired the person that was advising them and went with the political recommendations of the West Wing, which was already dissing its own infectious disease team. So, Florida is one of the examples at a statewide level that goes all the way down to the prisons, the schools, the beaches, you name it, 
uh, for making a political choice that was unsupported by the science and dangerous in terms of health and safety, illness, infection, and death. So yeah. that's a shame. Let, let me turn to uh, what is central to your organization and to what you and I do, which is the defense function. And um, I participated mostly uh, through, the, through video and so forth and phone conferences. But now there's talk about trials, which put jurors in a difficult position, lawyers who are older in a difficult position, court officers, all sorts of people. And it's very hard to do these things by video. And I understand that you've been focusing on that as an organization and personally. Uh, what is the profile of this problem in America opening our courts? Um, well, let me say first, and I know this is not an in intentional omission on your part, but the people who are suffering the most are the are the defendants. Who can't get an attorney <laughs> who, to defend who, them. <laughs> who not only have been robbed of their ability to have um, effective, conflict-free counsel who are able to prepare and um, and. Um, actually exercise this, you know, protect the Sixth Amendment rights that um, the right to counsel um, encompasses. But um, th th what's happened in, the, in with this, there are certain jurisdictions that are rushing to reopen and to restart trials, and then there are other jurisdictions that are being very smart and very measured. Uh, but there are lawyers around the country that are contacting NACDL uh, telling us that They've tried to have trials continue, jury trials continued, and judges are forcing them into trials. And um, we actually have a strike force that helps um, helps these lawyers defend uh, against threats of contempt, and uh, by judges who are forcing them to participate in proceedings that they don't believe they're prepared to uh, participate in. And uh, not only that, but they put them at, at, at personal risk because they're they um, are in a high risk category have comorbidity um, issues but we have actually NACDL has um, developed a set a set of uh, principles or state a statement of principles for reopening the courts which um, <clears throat> actually sort of fall into several categories there are about there are 10 principles but they're they're based on certain fundamental core concepts, which is the, that reopenings have to be based on science. They have to be made under independent medical supervision, and they have to be limited in duration to the, to the duration of the pandemic. Because we're starting to see things like virtual proceedings that are nobody ever considered doing before, that are, people are getting very comfortable with. And these virtual um, Zoom uh, hearings and, in some cases, Zoom trials are are um, th they are not possibly capable of replicating what a, a reasonable, fair trial ought to look like. Right. So, um, these any measures that are taken have to be limited to the duration of, of the uh, pandemic. They have to be uh, whatever measures are designed by courts. They should. Um, not be implemented unless the conditions are restored for defense counsel to fulfill their full Sixth Amendment functions, which is the, the, the most basic one is the development of a, <clears throat> of a robust attorney-client relationship. I have not 
seen any of my incarcerated clients face to face in over three months. Right. I've uh, I've been doing Zoom I'm sure with those almost, in and out of. Uh, I mean, at, yeah. at best, you, you talk to them on a telephone, and at best, you can arrange a, a video conference where you're not even sure that 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 the the person you're talking to is um, in a in a place where he's not being overheard um, by guards or other inmates. Um, but let, it, yeah, let, let me ask you a, a, a more specific question, and this is a little unfair because maybe there isn't an example from there, but uh, what is happening in Texas and Florida in terms of opening the courts? Those are among the, the, the most challenged because of the virus, and uh, Texas has seemed to um, recover from its early mistakes in terms of how it's approaching it, but I don't know what they're doing about courts, and Florida well, seems I, I, slow to learn, yeah. Yeah, both of them are problem states, actually, for that we um, on Friday, we were contacted by some lawyers in Texas um, about a, a, a new order that was issued. I don't know what their highest court is, but the, the, they are starting jury trials now. They, they are preparing <laughs> people for jury trials. You know, they're saying we're starting jury trials now. Get ready. Wow. Um, and. Um, I, th I think I know that there have been judges in Florida where they were they were doing mock virtual trials to see if it could be done. So is it possible to um, <clears throat> conduct a voir dire and have a jury watch a trial virtually? Um, they can be done, but they are. Um, I don't. I don't even know how to what words to say about how. In, impossible it is for a defendant to get a fair trial that is conducted virtually um, I, I couldn't agree more the, the, i mean it's just it, yeah. it's just it, it, it the whole virtual the idea of virtual testimony alters the whole dynamic of the courtroom it alters the the psychology of jurors it changes anybody's ability to assess credibility mm -hmm. jurors attention spans are there have been all kinds of studies about how how people's attention spans are affected by you know watching you know the computer screen. You don't know what's going on in the background of, of you know of the individual people's um, homes where they where they are you know sitting and and watching the the. It's like watching Judge Judy. Um, people, people. We, we, well, there's a special reports, kind of nightmare. Yeah, we've we've heard reports of people, you know, uh, you know, jurors, um, you know, texting on their cell phones while they're listening to, to testimony. There are lawyers who've you know conducted follow-up studies with the few juries that have that have um, that have started to proceed in that fashion. Several of those trials. Um, have just stopped midstream because of technical problems that um, the different participants have with their access to the technology. You know, not everybody not everybody has the same kind of technology um, available, and um, the the technical logistics um, has a tremendous impact on how you know what you're watching on the screen how people are perceived if you have good reception you have bad reception you're seeing people in just little blocks you can't tell if somebody is looking at you or looking somewhere else you don't even get to look at a whole at a whole jury and look at the witness at the same time that you're cross-examining a witness um the the logistics of a virtual trial and the impact on um the ability to uh, 
assess credibility and to detect bias um, is is just I, I can't imagine it. I mean, I, I really I, I I think I would refuse to participate in in a, a virtual jury trial. And I I know there are a lot of judges who don't believe that it's possible, and that there are judges around the country who are practicing doing it. And there are um, courts and bar associations that are putting out guidelines for how to do it. Um, and it's, um, in, in my view, it's, it's impossible to get a fair trial un, under those circumstances. And when you you also have the problem, if you are going to start and in, restart in-person trials, how is someone, um, the whole, uh, you have a right to have a jury that's made up of a fair cross-section of the community. And you are going to have the courts that are starting these trials have implemented guidelines that are sort of giving automatic excuses to um, potential jurors who either are um, because of their age or medical conditions or um, employment situations, uh, people uh, who are uh, have been impacted in one way or another by COVID, they're giving them sort of automatic excuses from jury duty, um, people with children at home. So what you're going to have are jurors that are self-selected um, and almost certainly not going to be representative of, um, of a fair cross-section of the community. And there's just no way to um, ignore the fact that racial and ethnic minorities and low-income um, individuals have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. And that is going to not only, uh, I mean, that's not only affecting um, who then is available as, uh, you know, for jurors, but how, how the whole court system is, is going to function. And what we're looking at, I think, is just an ex exacerbation of the historical um, inequalities and um, implicit biases that have infected the criminal legal system, uh, just, you know, just their, their historic failures, and they're just repeating themselves and being exacerbated by um, coronavirus. I think we've, uh, we've taken on a big chunk of the change management problem that confronts America. We didn't have a perfect system to begin with, and we're not always dealing smartly with the challenges that we have now, whether it be demonstrations, the virus, uh, how we conduct proceedings that are critically important to the reputation and freedom of individuals. So uh, I think that uh, we're very lucky to have you appear as an individual counsel in court and it's really a special thing that you've been the president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. It's an outstanding organization. For full disclosure, I'm a member and have been active in the past. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to address these issues. And perhaps down the road, hopefully when there are improvements, maybe we'll be able to talk about them more than the problems that we have currently. Well, I'd love to do that. I'm looking forward to the day that that happens. I'm afraid that it um, we have a long way to go, but um, there are a lot of people that are dedicated to getting there. Um, and I just have to say, I, you know, this being president of NACDL has been the um, 
most rewarding professional experience of my life. It, it just being involved with lawyers who are so dedicated to improving um, the, the justice system um, and protecting the rights of people who are um, have been unprotected for so so long. It's, it's just been a, a huge honor and a great privilege, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Well, you, you deserve the honor that you have, and you are a worthy president for this organization, and I'm sure everybody feels as I did, having voted for you, <laughs> that uh, we knew you'd do a great job, and you have. I want to well, thank, thank you, you for joining us, Nina. Well, thank you for having me. Stay tuned. Confederate statues are coming down, and each statue in so many communities has its own story. And yet, there's a common story. This is our discussion with Phil Thompson with the NAACP. We have with us today Phil Thompson, who was uh, formerly the chair of the NAACP, now serves on the executive committee, former Marine, although no Marine is ever former, Semper Fi. He currently uh, is an active lawyer representing, among others, indigenous people, tribes, and so forth. And so I'm glad to have you with us today, Phil. Welcome aboard. Thanks, John. I appreciate being on. And uh, I'm glad that uh, you are uh, doing these types of uh, broadcasts because you bring a broad view of a spectrum of knowledge to the the rest of the world. Right. Well, you know, the two of us, uh, we didn't come from wealthy families, basically middle-class families. Um, But whatever uh, disadvantage uh, uh, a white person may have, uh, every person of color has the color of their face, which apparently is a basis for discrimination in America. And we're right now in America fighting against that uh, bias that's just so unfair. It's the unfulfilled promise of of the United States that in the Declaration of Independence before there was a United States, we said that all were equal, and that promise has been unfulfilled from the time it was written until today, really, in terms of perfection. But I thought today we'd talk about the statue of a Confederate soldier that that stood within the green in the courthouse in Leesburg, Virginia, uh, just as many other statues stand elsewhere. And uh, as you know, I had... I made some effort in 2013 <laughs> to have the statue removed, and what I got instead was uh, a lot of coverage and death threats, and obviously they weren't followed through on them. But now, as you and I are talking, right now that statue was removed just days ago. And I think that it was in about 2015 when you were the chair of the NAACP, uh, you were asked about the statue, is that right? Uh, we were asked about the statue. Um made a, you know, uh, our statement was that at that time was that we thought it should have been removed to, um, there's a cemetery from the, the lone real battle in, in Loudoun County, although if you, if you travel around Loudoun County, you would think that, you know, half the Civil War occurred here by the historical <laughs> markers and, and everything else, but the, the, the lone real battle in Loudoun County at Balls Bluff, there's a cemetery with Union and uh, Confederate soldiers, and we thought that it's about two miles away, and we thought it should be moved to move to that location. You know, as a, as a symbol, I had clients who said they felt uncomfortable as persons of color going into a courthouse that had a Confederate soldier with a uh, holding up a, 
a long gun facing you as you approach the, the courthouse. And such a symbol of lawlessness, disunion, and racism just didn't seem appropriate inside the green. Uh, did you have any reaction like that to the statue? You know, I, I did, and, and, I, and I find it to be, you know, um, I always felt it was, it was, it was, and, and, it, and it really was, because if you go back, I, I've done research on that statue and what the daughters, um, you know, did. There's, there's extensive uh, records kept at the uh, Loudoun County Courthouse, and the day it was, it was dedicated was a huge day. Thirty thousand people showed up, or some huge number, and it was a big fair and all this stuff. And uh, you know, but this is what the daughters of of the Confederacy, uh, United Daughters of Confederacy, this is what they did. They went around the Commonwealth and other states, and they put these monuments in the most prominent place in these towns. And a lot of times, that was the courthouse green uh, or the courthouse grounds. And, and if you go around the South, you know, uh, my wife and I would travel. You know, we traveled throughout the South. You know, we go by a courthouse. There's something there from, you know, celebrating the Confederacy. But, you know, again, it's, it's part of a propaganda effort that was done by the South right after Reconstruction to try to, instead of saying we were losers and traitors, to turn it into some sort of gallant effort to protect states' rights and, 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 and whatnot. And it, re, it was re, reinforced during the Civil Rights years, era where that's when, you know, you start to see all the Confederate flags come out and come up, and some of the states actually changed their flags to Confederate flags, put a Confederate flag in, in their flag uh, in order to support, you know, be anti-civil rights. So it, it's, you know, it's it's part of a propaganda war that, you know, Hitler would, Hitler and Himmler would have, would have you know, blushed at, and even, uh, I, I believe, Stalin and, and all the communists in, in, in countries like China and, and Russia, and in North Korea, where they put up these monuments to themselves and to their cause to try to sell people on how valid it is. So it's a very vile but sinister effort on their part. It's very interesting, too, that it seemed to really become a strong movement when um, the organization you spent a fair amount of time with, the NAACP, was uh, making some headway and uh, organizing and uh, bringing uh, court cases. And uh, so this was this was a propaganda war, if you will, honoring people who should be ignored or dishonored or just become a part of history, like you say, at Ball's Bluff. Uh, now, a lot of people at different times were either indifferent or became active about taking down these statues. Uh, do, do you think the current atmosphere is the reason, whether it be the George Floyd uh, kneel to the neck that killed him incident or other incidents? What what do you think made the difference that so universally, not just in Leesburg, but uh, so many places now are removing these symbols of um, bias, racism, of, uh, uh, you know, disunion? Well, I think that part of it was election, you know, because you ran into the same problem I ran into. Uh, you couldn't, you know, there was a state law out there that said that you cannot remove uh, war memorials, and it was being interpreted. It, it, one court is interpreted to, to mean it didn't apply to war memorials that were going backwards. It applied to war memorials going forward. You know, with being a lawyer, we came up. You know, we could always argue that this is what is a war memorial per se, because the war had been over for a number of years before they put this statue in place in over over fifty years. But you know, there was a state law, and so once we once we found out there was a state law, the effort moved from from 
getting the county to move it to getting the law changed. And as the Democrats took control of all three uh, 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 branches of the government, or at least two of those bran- two branches of the government, the legislature and the, and, the, and the governor in the state of Virginia, then we were able to get the law passed. And I was, but I was really surprising because the law initially was going to require some all this community input and all these various things, and it got cut down to basically, you know, have a hearing on it, and that's it. They can move forward. So once that happened, our county chair, who is a very, you know, who had been involved with this process for a long time, she, you know, was very adamant about, you know, we're going to do the minimum required um, hearing time frame, and then she was going to remove that statute once that law changed. So, you know, it was it was the election that really turned the tide on this one. But nationally, it was the George Floyd um, murder that changed, started a momentous change that you're seeing even today. I think last night, um, the head of the uh, uh, Speaker of the House and in, 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 in um, House delegates in Virginia, she took the uh, Lee statue and all the Confederate bust out of the out of the House uh, chambers. And even today in Chicago, uh, they removed two Columbus statues in the city of Chicago. So uh, the momentum is definitely there from that from that from that horrific murder. Right, we all hold our breath that this this time it'll be effective that we'll pass the Racial Justice Act and the Congress uh, named after. George Floyd and other things. Do you, it's always bothered me as well that we have a memorial to Martin Luther King, which is a plaque in the ground outside the boundary of the courthouse, rather than uh, some three-dimensional uh, memorial. And I wonder if we shouldn't erect uh, in place of the Confederate statue one to John Lewis, for example. Well, there is, uh, you know, we did win, win uh, approval to put up a memorial for the slaves that were sold uh, where that statue is located at. Uh, there was an old court. That was where the old courthouse was, and slaves were sold at the steps of those courthouse. And that even that 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 event, which was called August Days, uh, uh, was still celebrated in this county up until a few years ago. Uh, but it 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 you know we've seen the changes. You know we, we've got ability to put something there, and I've got a call in from Clown signs who was a vice chair of the board of supervisors about moving forward in that direction um and so we're we're still looking at doing something that's just a process that's real difficult if i if my recommendation is they're going to put up anything in the instead of that in that location i would move the the, the uh, revolutionary war memorial which is a very nice memorial to that spot and put that up there because i think that the revolutionary war was you know um was you know basically freedom for everybody uh, at that time. So I think that would be a good gesture there. You know, another thing, if I remember, uh, you've also been concerned about one of the memorials that's in place. Uh, <laughs> there's a World War One memorial, and uh, maybe you could explain to us, if I'm correct, uh, what your concern, objection is to that current memorial as it stands. Well, it's a beautiful memorial until you look at the plaque on the memorial, and it and it's basically it lists the, the the men from Loudon that gave their lives during that conflict, and there's a list of about fourteen or fifteen or whatever the number is of, of a group. Then there's a line, and then there's three listed below that, and I, I it didn't take me but you know a quarter second to figure out what that meant that there were 
there are three below that were African Americans that were killed. So even in death serving their country, they couldn't they couldn't they couldn't you know be placed in the same location. And it's even more marked by there's a there's a there's, there's a set of photos down in uh, in uh, the county um, uh, clerk's office where they took a picture of all the World War One war vets. So they had a picture of the white ones, and off to the right you can see like. Behind the building, you can see the black vets, and then they have a second picture of the black vets, and that just tells you where we were. So this is the, terrible. It's the, in in some regards, it's the last visible vestige of Jim Crow in Loudoun County is on that memorial, and I think it should be changed. Yeah, I think you're right. It's a, it's really something that uh, separate but equal uh, had to be found not to be true. You know, going back to Plessy against Ferguson, a Louisiana case in which the question was if your skin color approximated that of a paper bag, a brown paper bag, you had to sit in the back. And it took uh, Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP and the Legal Defense Fund and a lot of cases in 1954 to say separate sure is not equal. And this is, it's not a minor way because it's important how people are treated, uh, but it's it's a, an example of how separate but equal is so pernicious to the people. And I, I think it's really great what you've been able to do, Phil Thompson, in the community and more generally in the NAACP. And I'm glad you could spend a few moments talking about the demise of the Confederate statue that stood until a few days ago at the Leesburg Courthouse. <laughs> <laughs> one, quick, one quick note is that I tell people that in 19, that statue was put in place in 1908. So a century later, an African-American who was running for president had a, had a rally about a mile or so where that statue was located at and had 50, almost 50,000 people at that rally. So I tell people that the Loudon of 1908 is not the Loudon of today. And so that's one reason why we needed to have that statue uh, removed. And uh, you probably were in the crowd. I was in the crowd with my daughter, and I thought this is a good way to pass on information to other people about how we act informs others how they should act and I think the the kids coming up behind us and the young adults are uh, the, the promise of America and I think that's one of the things we're seeing in the demonstrations across America now so that's a great example a great comparison and I definitely, yeah. definitely. hopefully we won't infect them with our with our with our craziness but we'll see <laughs> <laughs> yes but well, yeah there should be a reservation on all of our effects. I mean, maybe maybe not everything we do and the way we do it should be passed on. I, yeah. I'm I'm so glad you could take the time to talk to us today, Phil. I appreciate it, man. And uh, you know, keep up the good work, and uh, we'll, we'll 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 figure out some more things we got to get changed here in this county. I look forward to it. Take care. All right. Take Bye. care. Thank you. Finally, I've gotten calls, as perhaps each of you have wondered, uh, what what can an individual do to make a difference in this very important election. The short answer is you do what you can, and in this election, getting out the vote is more of a challenge because of the pandemic. We talk with Shakta Khalsa, a political activist, to discover what she's been doing. And this might be an answer to your question. There are other answers, but this is one. It takes a little bit of effort, but you don't have to go door to door. You don't have to pick up a telephone. We have with us today Shakta Khalsa, and uh, she's a political activist, and she's in Northern Virginia, but what she's doing 
is something that people across America can be doing if they care about removing Mr. Trump from the West Wing, uh, the Orange Menace, as I call him. Shakti, I'm glad you could join us. Thank you very much for asking. Now, could you describe your operation? Is it true for to, for starters that you have 45,000 postcards yourself that you are having filled out and getting ready to encourage people to go out and vote? Yes, that's true. Wow. Uh, so, uh, now you bought these cards yourself, you and your husband. Yes, this is this is like the way we like to contribute. So we provide the postcards, and a lot of the writers provide the stamps. Or I have a GoFundMe page for the stamps, also. Well, that's pretty good. So now, have you done this before this election? Yes, um, I think we started uh, with postcards for um, Virginia.com, which I highly recommend, postcards, and then uh, number four, VA.com. And uh, we also did postcards for postcards to voters.org, and they are national, and Virginia's is local, I mean, in Virginia. And um, I think we started around 2017 uh, writing postcards. That's really something. So, uh, so you get these postcards, and then how do you distribute them? And, and what packs and so forth? Well, um, it, before the the whole pandemic, uh, the way we did this was uh, we uh, had meetings at my house twice a week, uh, and uh, and several people would come. But then some people said, "Well, I can't come to the meetings, but I'd like to do some." So I say, "Okay, I'll set some out for you out on my front bench." And they would pick them up, and then they would have instructions, and then they would bring them back. So that's kind of how we started out. And um, I would say for the blue wave uh, in Virginia, which was uh, 2016, November 2016, we probably had about 45 writers, and we had to keep them now on a spreadsheet. So we kind of, our operation started getting a little less homespun and a little bit more like, okay, we got to keep track of everybody. You know, who took this, how many did they take, and when are they bringing them back, and all of that. So how many how many writers do you have now? You have forty five now, or do you have more than? No, that? oh no, no, we have almost a hundred writers. That's really something. And so, uh, how many yeah. postcards per person or group, or how, how do you? How okay, do you, here. So you know, in order to make it worthwhile for us, like we couldn't just give people fifty postcards or whatever. So we we just said, if you want to write with us, here's how we do it. You take 300 postcards to start, and we'll give you some scripts, and you write uh, and pick out some things you like from these scripts, and you can put some things in your own words, too, because we want it to be fresh. And basically, it's sort of like, everybody get out and vote for Democrats up and down the ballot. That's the general message for this year. And then uh, that's, we call that phase one. So everybody had to take at least 300, and we even mailed them out to people. Uh, we asked them if they could contribute for po uh, postage for mailing, too, and some did and some didn't. And then postage on the postcards to put a stamp on each one of the postcards, too. And we mailed them around the country, and I guess we're concentrated in Virginia, but we really have people writing all over the U.S. That's really something. So... Uh, so you're going to release upon the body politic 45,000 cards like when, in October? 
Yes, so that was phase one that I described, which is it's a general get out the vote and we leave a blank space for the candidates and we um, leave a, um, a space for the addresses and then people return them. That's phase one. They return it to us. We have one of our people, we call her Inspector 12. She, <laughs> she inspects them. That's what. She, that's all she does for our whole thing. And she takes them from my garage. She, she takes them home. She inspects them. She counts them. She sees what else they need. And then she returns them to my garage. <laughs> well, you know, that's terrific. My One of my undergraduate degrees is in industrial engineering. So this is part of the quality control phase of your operation. Right. You know, I think I think of when you go, I've been to bakeries, for instance, these massive places, and they're, they're measuring the moisture and so forth, and they're seeing what the weight is and the humidity, and, and they're tasting them, so they're often heavy people in these food places. So you have Inspector 12 looking at we these do. things, and, and that's really good. And yeah. they're very personalized because of the individual messages that people put on them and different colored inks and stuff like that. Is that right? Right, right. But then some people would just forget to write, like vote November 12th or early if you can and so we're like uh oh Inspector 12 yeah. there's a red red light here we have to put that on the card yeah we'd you know, like it to be November 3rd be right yeah yeah, November third, or vote early if you can, or something. Something about it need a little bit of help. So, uh, shout out to Lorraine, who is our Inspector Twelve. <laughs> I see. Well, that's cool. Well, we know something about it, and we found out about it because Holly is uh, taking the laboring oar, and I've been uh, helping her, but she's been doing the hardest work on it. And uh, it's such a great idea. And I've been doing politics uh, in various ways since I was like seven, passing out material on the street. So I'm very impressed with. Yeah. This operation. Now, if somebody hears this, and I get a lot of people asking me in the various places I talk and so forth, oh, what can I do? So if somebody in Iowa right now wanted to write these postcards, would they go to a website? How would they connect themselves to this kind of an operation? Yes, I would. I would say that. Um, of course, they could always get in touch with me because we have our own little version of postcards to voters um, operation here. But the two um, websites that I mentioned are very professional and they are fantastic. You would just need to buy your own postcards. See, we provide them for our people, uh, for people to want to write write for us because. That's our contribution. But if you if you do write for postcards for Virginia.com or postcards to voters, and that's to voters dot uh, org, then you will need to buy your own postcards. Not it's not very expensive though. You can look around, or they even have them on the sites. So you would have to get a little group together and just have a writing group. What we do now is we have a postcard writing group on Zoom, so people can gather together on Mondays and Thursdays. We we have them twice a week, and then we can write postcards and talk about politics. It's quite fun. Some people don't prefer to do that. They just write them at home and then send them back to us whenever they're done. So they could contact me for sure, but they could also just go ahead and get involved with postcards for va.com or postcards to tovoters.org. And they are, you know, they have a whole setup there and we work with them as well. Now, um, how would you do, you, do you want to say in this podcast how they would contact you directly to be involved? Yeah, let's see. Um, well, I'm most active on Facebook. So if uh, they wanted to look for my name, Shakta Kulsa, S-H-A-K-T-A, 
K-H-A-L-S-A, on, um, on Facebook. I'm the only one, I think, with that kind of a name, so <laughs> I think they'd be able to find me. <laughs> well, okay, you, you could be surprised, but in a billion names or whatever they have now, I'm sure they could find yeah. one. So there, there has to be something now you have to tell me, Shakta, that uh, mm-hmm. made you awoke, if you will, unless you've been an okay. activist your whole life. What, what was yeah. it that stimulated you to be as active as you are? Well, I, I have always been a Democrat, and um, I came from Pittsburgh and a blue-collar worker family, and my mother impressed on me. She used to work at the polls for the Democrats, and she impressed on me that um, the um, that the Republican, this is her sort of like really simplistic version, but it always stuck with me. Republicans are for the rich people, and the Democrats are for the rest of us. And so there was always that, because I came from a very blue-collar worker family. You know, my father worked on an assembly line, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and that impressed me. But I always had found that the Democrats were, I thought, more u- human and more compassionate about things. And that's why I always voted Democratic. But I would always just vote. I mean, I always voted, but I never was really active doing anything. And then Donald Trump got elected and I couldn't sleep that night. And I finally went into a fitful sleep. And when I woke up in the morning and realized what had happened, the night before, I just got this fire in the pit of my stomach, like, oh, no, this is not happening. This is not happening. I became like the mama bear. It's not happening. And I joined, uh, first I joined Pantsuit Nation, but they weren't doing, like, active things, but they were recommending, or somehow I got in touch with Indivisible. And I started... Um, uh, I'm an administrator, organizer for Indivisible VA10, along with other colleagues. And then that hooked me into the activism community. And then from there, some of us decided we were going to do postcards because I tried phone banking and I was horrible at phone banking. That surprises I, me, actually, uh, because you're so comfortable. Yeah, you're so comfortable oh. talking now. So I would, I would. You, oh no, it wasn't that. I'm comfortable talking, but I'm like. I don't like to feel like I'm bothering people, you know, that nice girl thing. And then people would answer the phone and they'd think you were just trying to sell something and then they would hang up on you. And so I, I, I like that unobtrusiveness, but also the creativity of the postcards. Because just like you were saying, it's like you're writing to a friend that you don't know, like, hello, fellow yes. voter, you know, um, have you made your plans to vote on November 3rd or earlier if you can? And just remember, uh, you know, less nonsense more progress vote for democrats up and down the ballot like these are our messages that we write there and then when we get those ones back then uh we get the candidates and so far we've gotten virginia candidates but we want to what we really want to do is get uh senatorial candidates that uh you know like in right. Colorado, in North Carolina, in um, in Maine. You know, we have, my husband is kind of the mastermind of that part of things where he is reaching out to um, campaigns. We want to make sure that, that this works. And um, one thing that I'd like to say, if anybody from campaigns are listening, is there have been studies done on postcards, and I'm not talking about the slick brochures with, that everybody throws in the mail. Just don't even waste your time on those. Just get all of us volunteers. We pay for everything. We pay for the postcard. We pay for the postage. We pay for everything. And just just give your addresses to either one of those two that I mentioned or contact me because 
these are handmade postcards and um, they're even signed by people and uh, there was studies done on this that you can find on postcards for Virginia dot com and uh, the studies show that there was the same amount of um, of activist input uh, from canvassing as there was with postcards and even when sometimes people were canvassing someone would go and say hey I got your postcard and I have it here on my refrigerator that's and they cool. would just, you know, and they yeah. would, sh- or they bring them to, um, they bring them to them, to the voting um, poll locations. So we know that the postcards work, and I know it's a new thing, and a lot of the campaigns are very involved with, um, with canvassing, which is hard to do right now with the coronavirus. And then, secondly, the phone banking and texting, but. Um, this is personal. It's a personal touch, and it also we call it Sharpie therapy. Because <laughs> you write the cards with sharpies, right? Yeah. We write them with sharpies, and it's therapeutic for us, you know. So, it's a win-win. <laughs> well, Shakta, I think that you've made a great contribution to this next election, uh, a, a significant one, because I think it's nothing less than we either stop this uh, growing monarchy in its mm-hmm. steps and proceed to restore the republic or we don't and we can't have another four years given the no, tragedies of the economy and of the virus and of the misconduct and corruption in the office and so you're making an enormous contribution and i think that our listeners will be very interested in it because a lot of people are looking for what they can do and this has a personal touch to it like you say that mm-hmm. people are more likely to do and you're and it's true a lot of people don't like to ask uh, for anything on a telephone, especially if they have to explain why you're on the phone to begin with. So I want to thank you for talking to us about this. Is there anything you want to add, Shakta? Oh, just I'd like to thank everyone who has been helping, and I'd like to also just put a shout-out to the two orgs that are working very hard on this. And you can either contact me or contact them because they have a well-oiled machine running, and they're happy to share what they know, especially Postcards for Virginia. is very happy to share how they could get this going in other states, which is really the next step. Well, thanks again. Good to be with okay. you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you once again, if you're a friend, uh, for joining this edition of our podcast. If you're new to our podcast, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I hope you found it interesting. Subscribe if you haven't already. It doesn't cost you anything, and you'll get notice of the podcast when it comes out again a week from uh, Sunday. So we'll be, again, we'll be with you again next Sunday. Thanks for joining us. All the best. Until next Sunday. Bye-bye. We have
freedom's light burning warm Today. Today.